This is Teaching Otherwise, a podcast exploring teaching in psychology. Welcome to episode one, Let's Get Critical. In this, our first episode, we discuss the podcast, what it is, what we're hoping to accomplish, and what we mean by critical teaching. We also preview the special programming on hacking methods instruction for the upcoming 2020 midwinter meeting of the Society for Theoretical and Philosophical Psychology. All right, welcome to the podcast. I'm Brady Wiggins. I'm here with Josh Clegg. Hello. And Joe Austinson. Hey guys, uh, this is the first of what we hope to be many uh, podcasts discussing critical pedagogy, which we'll talk about shortly. But um, Brady, maybe you want to talk a little bit more about who uh, we're hoping will listen to this podcast and, and what we're hoping to accomplish with it. Sure. Um, so for the last few years, the three of us have been involved in looking at how our work in theoretical and philosophical psychology impacts our teaching and the other way around. Um, we've, we've had some symposia that we've been involved in and we've organized a special interest group we can talk more about that explores some of these issues. Our, our hope with this podcast is that we can kind of extend some of the value that we've found in these explorations, that we can um, tackle questions about how do we bring uh, a critical mindset to our teaching? How can we develop pedagogies that are informed by asking foundational questions um, about psychology, about pedagogy? How does that change our content? How does that change our practices? Uh, we're hoping that we can bring on guests that we that we can interview, that we can have conversations with, and in general, that we might be able to um, bring something useful to listeners that will um, help them to solve problems in their teaching or um, find new things that they can do. I don't know. I'm curious what you guys would say we're trying to accomplish here. Well, I think it's worth noting that we we have informally collaborated on our teaching just by talking about it with each other and with others. But, you know, there are many ways that my teaching has, I think, gotten more critical, more thoughtful, more innovative because I heard you guys talk about something that you tried or others, or we've mentioned things that other colleagues have done. So I feel like this podcast and the work that might be associated with it is a way to extend and more formalize that process of learning from each other and bringing in more people who can kind of teach us. Yeah, I like, I like how you put that. Every time that I've organized a symposium on teaching, it's been, I want to hear what this person has to say about their teaching so that I can figure out something with my own teaching. Uh, I, I think this is another version of that. I think that, that one of the hardest things about uh, starting a teaching job out of a, a PhD program is is the lack of any training in teaching and and I found that a lot of my senior colleagues especially didn't have um, didn't really want to take the time to have conversations about this and so it, it's really been helpful for me especially to have these conversations uh, but I wonder I wonder Josh if you could maybe talk a little bit more about 
the difference between what we say when we're talking about critical pedagogy and what general pedagogical conversations might be like. Yeah, I mean, and I, it's also worth acknowledging that there's that term critical pedagogy is a big umbrella. There are a lot of experts who are a lot more expert than we do in that term critical pedagogy. Um, you know, because it refers, I think a lot of people use it to refer to specific literature, you know, like Frarian um, pedagogy or like liberation theory, you know, critical theory being applied to pedagogy. And outside of psychology, there's a lot of people who do a lot of work on that sort of theory and practice. Um, and, and so, you know, we're, I think that in a sense, yes, we're drawing on that tradition, trying to learn from it. And that's, I think, something that we would hope for is to learn from more people who represent that tradition. But I think we're also using it in a really more general way to refer to kind of applying not just critical theory specifically, but theory and philosophy more broadly to teaching and like Freddie said, to addressing really fundamental theoretical questions, questions that come from say philosophy science or hermeneutics or other kinds of traditions and trying to use those to rethink basic assumptions about how we teach and what we teach, why we teach. So I think it's, we're using it really broadly and relatively loosely, but that it still, in some respects, means those critical traditions that, that are, you know, larger than just psychology. Maybe it's worth noting um, just a little bit of our background that both in terms of our training as well as the research that we've become involved in we've been pretty active in division 24 of the apa the society for theoretical and philosophical psychology where there's been an emphasis on challenging foundational assumptions and questioning a lot of what's taken for granted in the field and as students i mean i'll speak for myself as a student it really exposed me to the possibility that some of the content that is often taken for granted in a psychology textbook, maybe shouldn't be taken for granted, that there's some critical reflection that doesn't always take place. And um, then discovering that, you know, especially a hermeneutic background, I think that drove a lot of what I was trained in, but then discovering a variety of other critical fields that challenge some of these taken for granted assumptions, um, for me, it really brought clear that there's this question of what do I teach? Uh, what's the content of my teaching? But also, what do these critiques say about how I go about doing my teaching? How might they challenge things that I would otherwise take for granted about what it means to know something, to learn something, uh, and to relate as a teacher to students or a student to teacher? So. Yeah. Sorry. So kind of two things then there's there's the the what to teach which is always has always been kind of a challenge for me especially cuz Brady I think you and I had very similar well the three of us all had very similar upbringings academically speaking and so it's always been on my mind to go in the classroom uh hoping to introduce uh at least at least the opportunity to students to consider whether the things they're reading about or the things even that I'm teaching about are worth reading about and worth teaching about. Um, 
but but then also to have to balance that, I guess, and this might come up later, I guess, but but in order to take some of this philosophical knowledge that we've gained from our own educations and introduce it into a classroom that's not a philosophy classroom, but that's a psychology classroom. So we have to be able to make a judgment about how we teach the content we've been hired to teach while at the same time help our students um, try to be critical about that content. But then there's also the, the pedagogy itself, the how that we teach. And that's kind of the second thing I think you're talking about there, Brady, um, where we're critical. I'm, I'm reminded, I guess, of, of a project you and I did, uh, help me with this, the, on empathy in the classroom. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and just thinking about our relationship with our students differently which has implications for how we teach in the classroom, which is really just one way to approach the how. Yeah. Well, and, and more than just empathy, we were looking at how our students might have altruistic motivations that both implicitly and explicitly, a lot of pedagogies assume a sort of self-interest in students mm -hmm. that denies a generosity that could exist between teacher and students. Just asking that question, I think, really brought a shift in my relationship with my students, but even in some of the technical aspects of my teaching. The kinds of assignments that you give. Yeah. And, and even the way you grade too, right? Mm -hmm. um, but maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, here. yeah. But, but that's a good example of the sort of thing that, that we want to explore with this podcast. Yeah. yeah, and I would say that in terms of like a, ideas that kind of that sort of shared academic lineage that we have you know that hermeneutic phenomenological existential humanistic kind of tradition that division 24 represents i think it has given me and i think all of us lots of ways to think differently about teaching but i would say for me at least a lot of like practices that i've tried to experiment with and that have been that have helped me really change the how have come from from the more kind of broadly critical tradition, like feminist theory has been a huge benefit, I think, for me. And also just collaborating with uh, other, you know, teachers and, and then bringing their other disciplinary orientations, other theoretical orientations is often the really kind of explicitly critical folks who, who are doing really radically different cool stuff that has been a real benefit in my yeah, and, and in that spirit, I think this is, we have coming up here real soon, this hackathon at the midwinter meeting. And um, I think this, in that spirit, we're trying to develop both this podcast um, and also this hackathon for, um, to, to give members in the division an opportunity to do this, this sort of thing uh, together both for our benefits, right? Because we're sort of interested in what others have to say, but also for the benefit of each other. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that hackathon. Brady, you, you kind of introduced this idea to us. Do you want to say a little bit what a hackathon is? Yeah, so, um, so this is a program that we proposed for the midwinter meeting of the Society for Theoretical and Philosophical Psych that's being held in San Diego. Uh, and this is something that I experienced at a couple conferences that I've been to uh, coming out of the open science movement. Um, and 
what I found there is that they would schedule these long blocks of time, anywhere from two hours to eight hours, where they'd have usually just kind of a small room where the conference was being held. And a bunch of people would get together tackling a specific practical problem. Um, you know, if, if one, one example was how do we address diversity in open science was one that I saw at a conference I was at. And then they would spend the time that they had trying to produce some practical product, whether it was a paper, um, maybe gathering together a set of readings. Uh, it might even be developing some new tool that they might use in their research or in the classroom. And so we talked about doing something like this for um, critical pedagogy that we would like to um, bring together people who are interested in looking at the research methods class. How, how might we marshal our resources to help each other do a better job of critically approaching the research methods class? And the nature of a hackathon is it's kind of open-ended. It's, it's something that the focus unfolds and emerges in the process. And so there, there's a lot of things that this could become, but maybe as we talk about it a little bit more, we can kind of point some of the guidelines that we'd like to work within and some of the things that we hope we can accomplish by trying to hack the methods class. I think part of why we focused on the methods class as a possible candidate for a hackathon is that that's something that amongst ourselves we have in small ways worked on together. You know, like at least I've taken ideas from Freddie and Joe about how to teach methods. Um, and those have kind of reshaped my uh, you know, design over the years. And so that's something that we've had experience trying to design and learning from each other about how to improve the design. Well, and, and along with that, Methods, I think, has a couple of nice things to tackle, especially as a sort of inaugural project. It, methods usually shows up in most canonical classes. There's usually at least a research methods chapter in most undergraduate textbooks of whatever topic. Uh, but then we've got the research methods class for undergraduates. Most graduate programs require some kind of research methods class, but most teachers end up having to teach some kind of methods. But I think it's also uh, an area that has at least the appearance of a sort of orthodoxy that we have to grapple with. Uh, and, and so I think it presents some of the challenges that could be reflective of a lot of the other types of teaching that we do in psychology. Yeah, I mean, we were, I'm recalling now we wrote a chapter <laughs> that's about the struggles of trying to teach research methods against an orthodoxy that, that <clears throat> you know, puts us in all these kind of impossible dilemmas where we have to train students in things we don't even really believe in, you know, like say operationalization. And, <clears throat> and, you know, not, and having to deal with the dilemma of, trying to teach them or, or give them too, too much work by trying to have them be bilingual in both a critical approach and a mainstream. Right. This is something we've talked a lot about, um, but not, not Joe, I think you don't, you don't teach like a methods course regularly, right? Is that? 
Uh, no, not anymore. But so, but you do, so in what capacities do you end up teaching methods? Do you teach methods much in your other classes? No, I don't. And, and actually, you know, one of... Thanks for contradicting me, Joe, by the way. Wait, how did I contradict you? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just ribbing you. I said that everybody has to teach methods a little bit, right? So. Oh, well, I had to teach it for many years. In fact, that was the only way I could, I could get a job. Both of my first jobs were because I taught an experimental design class. And, and I, you know, my problem was, was um, I was never very good at it. So they stopped having me teach it and they've got me teaching other things. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I, it's the fact that it's a universal course that we have to teach and have to take makes it a really good place to start having these conversations, I think. Um, well, I think it's some, you know, methods is, it can be a piece of even like a regular course. Right. I mean, you know, sometimes I, I will teach these sort of gen ed, multiple interdisciplinary courses. And I end up teaching methods in like half of those because well, they'll do an interview project. So then I'll, I'll like do half of a lecture on how to do interviews. You know? So like little pieces of method can find their way into all kinds of. Well, yeah, well, and you can't avoid the literature that students have to read in some classes and, and talking about um, the, the methodology and how that affects uh, the, what you're reading. I mean, I don't know how to say that other than in my marriage class as kind of an example. Because that's, that's the class I teach more regularly than any other class. It's the biggest content class I teach. And I really have a lot of freedom in that class to teach, um, to define the, let me say, the curriculum. Uh, and in psychology, what's nice about psychology, it doesn't, it doesn't really deal with marriage all that much. Uh, but since it is a psychology class, then I have to bring psychology into it. And I'm, and I'm sometimes frustrated with uh, some of the things that, that I have my students read in there. Uh, and unfortunately what that means is that in, I have to have conversations sometimes about the studies themselves and the methods behind the studies and uh, the way that those, the way that the use of method can help to shape what's being studied, if that makes any sense. So it's, it's unavoidable, I guess, is my point. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Joe, because it, it seems to me that, that the, the type of critical reflection that we're talking about oftentimes comes back to methods, whether we want it to or not. The, the kinds of theories that you might want to talk about, the kinds of issues that you might want to talk about, if you're having to approach them from uh, the assumption that the experimental paradigm is the pinnacle of how to obtain knowledge, I imagine that would really change your marriage class as opposed to the sorts of things that uh, a qualitative approach to research might do. That, that these these sorts of questions of, of content, what is knowledge and how to go about it, 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 it oftentimes comes back to these questions of methods. Yeah, I wouldn't say I ever get into conversations about the philosophy of science with my marriage students. Uh, but 
But what I do, what I have done now, marriage is really the provenance of sociology, I think, and and so more so than psychology. Um, but there is one text that I use in there that is a historical text, and it's very sociological. And so it talks about the the history of marriage and how it's contributed to the way that we live and understand marriage today. And it becomes a very useful book in introducing to the students this idea of why we think of marriage as a place to get um, to get personal fulfillment, as opposed uh, to thinking about it in in relational terms, uh, which which was the more common approach to marriage, uh, you know, even just two hundred years ago. Uh, and and so then when you introduce to them, say John Gottman's literature, right, where who where he likes to talk about positive affect as being the, the linchpin that holds marriage together. That if you pull that linchpin out, the whole thing falls apart, right? And he's absolutely right uh, about, about this, that, that if there isn't enough positive affect in a relationship, a couple's going to get a divorce. Um, but is he right about that because it's objectively true? Or is he right, right about that because um, that is the cultural state of marriage today that that we expect positive affect and and if it's the latter then does that mean that we can we can um, then reshape our own expectations about marriage around something slightly different and so there's not really an explicit conversation about method there right except to say that if you adopt the empirical method the only thing you can observe is what's observable and what's observable is what's culturally true in the in, in the moment and with marriage we see in, over the history of marriage that it has been shaped that it's been different culturally um, for you know that, that it was different 200 years ago and a thousand years ago and 2000 years ago so that were we to take an empiricist and put him you know in an ancient Rome and he were to observe what makes marriage work he would get a very different, get very different outcomes. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, questions of method are embedded in any kind of claim that a psychologist might Exactly. Make. Usually invisible, and in fact, we sort of do our best to try to make them invisible. We, we try to make, we, we report findings as though the findings exist, not that we interpreted them, that they, these were sort of constructed through a particular kind of ritualized form of method. So we hide it, but it's there. Right? It's implicit in every claim that you might make in any cycle. So if we take if we take, you know, that assumption that methods are sort of like intrinsic or they're, you know, they're folded in to you know whatever we might do in psychology, then we can assume that methods and instruction is a pretty basic question. But then, exactly, what does it mean to like take a critical approach? methods and structures. Mm -hmm. how, does that mean critical thinking? Does that mean, like, what's different about how you do methods instruction if you are taking a critical perspective? Particularly because a lot of the discourses around critical thinking in psychology often default to the assumption all that means is teaching methods. That if students know how to use empirical research methods, then they're good critical thinkers. 
Right, yeah, they're not armchair scientists anymore. You know, those phrases that you see in methods textbooks over and over again, it's not armchair reasoning. They use science to test their theories and that's what critical thinking means, I think. And it is, and it is critical. Well, it is critical to, to a certain degree. Sure. I mean, it, 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 it's critical in ways different from doing armchair science. But then there's the question of, of whether we can be and if we should be and how should we be critical of the method, right? Yeah, and just in pedagogy too, you know, like if we think about critical pedagogy in a general sense, not, not just about methods instruction, but just in general, you know, I think we can ask questions about like, you know, who's, who's the audience of our teaching? What are the real goals of our teaching? You know, are we folding our teaching into a neoliberal system where we are, you know, uh, stamping out worker bees or whatever? Or are we, and you know, grading gets folded into that. And I think I know that for most teachers that becomes like this dilemma where, you know, grading splits you off from the from some of the goals that you value and makes makes you adopt others that you maybe don't value. And so I, I think it raises questions about like, you know, where's the center of power in the classroom, right? And is it a primarily commoditized or economic relationship? Should it be, or should we be thinking of more of a kind of, you know, public commons type relationship? You know, so I think those are the kinds of questions that a critical approach bring beyond just like, am I thinking critically? You know, they're asking us to think about the context, the politics, the power relationships, the, the histories of oppression, in addition to, you know, just thinking critically about the topic. I guess one, one core issue that I see kind of uniting some of those strands is, feel free to challenge me on this, but I think that a critical approach to the methods class would challenge the notion of a methodological orthodoxy. Um, e even if there's maybe an acknowledgement of a presumed orthodoxy, a critical methods class wouldn't accept the fact of the orthodoxy. Right, or, or maybe it would accept it as like a political fact, but not as like a epistemic fact. Right. Like, like, yes, there is an orthodoxy, but that doesn't mean that there should be an orthodoxy. Yeah, it's you're you're not you're not coming at it as a believer of the orthodoxy, or as one merely trying to indoctrinate in the orthodoxy. Yeah, you know, I, I think I wrote something about this, but somewhere, but so I'm probably repeating myself. But I really think that if we had the resources and the institutional support, you know, I could think of methods class that was like historically oriented, where instead of teaching a bunch of like procedures like here's how you do you know this kind of study here's how you do this kind of thing it'd be more like here's what people have done here's how they've justified it here's the sort of outcomes that came of their their approach to method here are some critiques of it here are some alternatives to it like a more historical approach where you you just talk about methods like this kind of history of things that people have tried and have that have had different you know differing values differing outcomes you know, I mean, that's obviously an incredibly complicated. I mean, that could be a life project. Yeah. That story. Well, and the fact, and the fact that, and the fact that you don't have the resources for that is a good reason for the hackathon. That's one of the reasons that we're doing the hackathon, right? Yeah. One of the things we have to struggle through, I think, is as teachers, is 
how to how to take the orthodoxy, which which in, in many respects is just kind of imposed on us. Here's the course that you teach. Here's the content that you teach, and and how to teach that with some integrity, um, but also with a critical eye, right? Yeah, it's probably worth highlighting some of the dilemmas that we talked about in that chapter that we wrote together about teaching methods. We talk a little bit about how there's this dilemma of do we make our students do double duty by learning all these critical methods on top of the traditional experimental type methods that are usually part of the methods class. Um, there's the question of just what's practical for our students in terms of what type of methodological education is going to open up doors for them. Uh, but then that's set against the question of what is worthwhile? Where, what do we see as uh, a, a good way to pursue knowledge? I don't know if I'm capturing that well, um, or if you guys would say that differently. Yeah, I think that, that about fits with what we wrote about. And I think, you know, one thing that I think we've talked about a number of times is this idea of using questionable research practices as a way of kind of bridging some of that complexity, like doing, using that metaphor of doing double duty, right? We, questionable research practices, rep, replication crisis, that's something that is, is a way of spending student time and, and instructional time on something that's a, a core issue to everyone in the discipline, regardless of their epistemic stance. Um, but it also is this avenue for in injecting critical thinking into the course. You can do both at the same time. I think that's the kind of practice that we would hope to get out of this hackathon. You know, like yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's something that we've talked quite a lot about and have found to be one nice point of entry to deal with that double duty. So both in terms of the dilemmas, but also the types of solutions that could come out of the hackathon. That that's a great example. Um, although certainly lots of other directions that, that it could take. We, we've set it up so that we anticipate having sort of three working groups in the hackathon, that there'll be one that's focused on the syllabus. What would the structure of a course that's taking a critical approach to methods look like? Uh, we've got another one that's looking at readings. Um, what, what's out there that we could draw from to teach a critical methods course, and then another group focusing on assignments and exercises. What could we do in our classrooms? What could we have students do outside of the classroom that would reflect this desire for a critical approach to methods? I think the idea is that in each of those groups, we'd be actually be working. That's what the time in the hackathon would be spent on is, you know, we would have, you know, shared Google documents in all of these groups or something like that, where we would be, you know, like actually listing readings or constructing assignments, you know, like actually gathering information, producing content in that, you know, three or so hour period. I think we're still figuring out exactly how long it's going to be. Yeah, at the end of it all, we'd actually have something that we could use in our teaching, something we could share with other people who are trying to take on similar problems. Yeah, we would put up on a website and link that people can get access to it. And one of the nice, go ahead. Well, one of the nice things about 
the hackathon too that I think it's really important to keep in mind is it's going to be a long session as long as as long as we can fit in into a, a day um, but that means that that people can come and go and they can even come and and sit in on one group uh, and 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 give and receive ideas on a syllabus, for example, and then move to a different group and talk about assignments or come back later or bring their dinner or whatever they need to do. Um, and then at the end, we'll have these products and, and we're going to make these products available, right? Yeah, we've, we've got some plans for being able to share these online so that um, whoever is there, but also people who aren't able to attend can access the products of our work. And very likely a lot of this will be um, step one in ongoing projects. Hopefully this will lead to further collaboration and developing things that might even go beyond the hours that we could spend together during the hackathon. So if people are interested, bring your computer or whatever else you might have that you could get some work done on, bring your questions, bring your ideas. Um, I, I think it'll be a really cool session. I agree. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I think that about wraps things up for this first podcast. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Brady. All right. We'll catch you later. Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you again soon on another episode of Teaching Otherwise.